This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. The invasion of Normandy involved the unprecedented coordination of military forces from several nations, resulting in one of the most dramatic series of events to transpire during World War II. Tens of thousands of soldiers, sailors, and airmen found themselves in a desperate pitched battle. Officially, the bold attack was codenamed Operation Overlord, but we have come to know it as D-Day. On that day, Wally Parr was a paratrooper of the famed Ox and Bucks Regiment, part of the British 6th Airborne Division. But rather than parachute into Normandy from transport planes, the soldiers of his company flew into combat in three gliders. Their mission was to seize two bridges on the eastern flank of the invasion area. I joined the army in February 1939. That was seven months before the war as a 16-year-old. I served right the way through the war, finishing up in Palestine in 1946. All told, I served seven and a half years in such places as Normandy, the Ardennes, Holland, Germany, India, and Palestine. Okay, now we're going to talk about uh, D-Day and the events leading up to the invasion. Uh, when did you really get into a, a, a position where you were actually preparing for an invasion that you knew was imminent, mm. that was coming soon? Well, as briefly as possible, um, I spent my first three years in the Gloucestershire Regiment and then in February 1942, um, I transferred to the six, what was then the 1st Airborne Division and later the 6th Airborne Division. And the training initially in Major John Howe's company was very strict. Training was very rigorous, discipline was strict. Now that was from February 42 to 43 and into 44. But he had his own special technique of training that differed from anything else in the rest of the regiment. He was a keep fit maniac and insisted on winning every competition we ever went into. So much so that by the time they were making plans for D-Day, he had one of the best companies in the British Army, never mind the 6th Airborne Division, and this was proven time and time again. The training leading up to it was became so intense at times that it was almost unbelievable. Uh, every fourth uh, Friday, for example, we used to go through PE tests, efficiency tests, and so on. Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so on. And Friday morning, up early, a quick run round, a bit of breakfast, on parade at eight o'clock with fighting equipment and do 22 and a half miles in five hours. Now I've told that to Steve Ambrose many years ago and he said, no son, you're getting your figures mixed up. I said, no, I'm not. We used to do 22 and a half miles in five and a half hours. We'd be back by two o'clock or just after, have a foot inspection, wash down, some food, and then you had a choice. You could either go for a cross-country run or go and play football or cricket, whatever the case may be. That is just one part of our training. 
But as regards running and marching, there was never a company to equal it. We marched back from Ilfracombe to Bulford in 1942. 143 miles in four and a half days and we carried every bit of equipment. And when the regiment got back to Bulford, we was nearly a half a day in front of the rest of them. We were so well trained. But it's not just that. It was the handling of every kind of weapon, knowing every weapon, explosives, detonators, grenades, mines. We had to know the whole lot. I was a sniper, and when I had my stripes, I was corporal in charge of D Company snipers. And believe me, you had to be able to put five bullets in that at 200 yards. Firing what kind of rifle? Uh, Enfield uh, 303, fit, fitted with a telescopic sight. Uh, a telescopic sight, incidentally, doesn't make a bad shot a good shot. It makes him a worse one. It just enlarges the target. You should be able, according to his specifications, kill a man at 400 yards and hit a man at 800 yards. And they could. So you were ready when it came down to getting ready for D-Day. Uh, yeah. You were already very well trained. and uh, Ooh, Right up to it, yes. What sort of uh, instructions were you given about what your mission would be uh, during the invasion, any special mm. assignments that you all received? What, were, what was the focus of well, your attention? Well, uh, the information sort of leaked through. I mean, uh, we did um, an exercise torch from Bardney, and somehow a real rumour started that sounded correct, that we were now about to start getting ready for the invasion. And at a, about that time, we were taken to a place called Exeter, and did training on two bridges 400 yards apart. Then we cottoned on to what we was going to do, something to do with bridges. But of course we weren't told when or where or anything like that. But we already knew then that we were being trained to do a special job on two bridges, obviously in France somewhere, as far as we're concerned, but we knew nothing else. But then came the time to move into the concentration camp, as we call it. And we took off, and we went to a place called Tarrant Rushton, down in Dorset. We were taken into this place, surrounded by barbed wire, uh, red caps, military police with dogs around it, and the only time you went out is when you went for a five or six mile run and back again. And after we'd been there, I think, three or four days, there was one tent with a guard on it outside all the time, a big marquee. John Howard took us in there. And I can remember him saying, well, you've been very patient, fellas, but this is it. And he took this tarpaulin off, and there was a model of Benneville and the bridges. And we just stared at it. That was it. The next few days was non-stop. We knew uh, the name of the mayor, the cafe owner, uh, the man in charge, the German in charge of the outfit. We knew where the guns were, the slick trench. We knew everything over and over and over again. We was down there for a couple of days, getting the feel of it. We came back to Wing Barracks Bulford for a while, and then shortly afterwards, uh, we took off. This was in May, 
This was in May uh, 1944, where we were stuck in this concentration camp, as we call it. What did you think when they pulled, when the commander pulled back that tarpaulin and you saw the bridge? Was, what were some of the emotions in the crowd? Oh, it just went dead quiet. You know, some of the blokes uh, behind were sort of craning forward and we, I don't think anybody said anything. We just stared at it. God, that's it. And then, of course, people started, what's that there, what's that there? Then the instructions started, all the information that had been sent over to us. It all started. And, of course, there we were, over and over everything. One section had this job to do, one platoon had that to do, one section this, one platoon that, and so on and so on. Charlie Gardner and I, we were given a, a job by uh, Lieutenant Brotheridge. He was the first man to be killed in the invasion, my platoon commander. And our job, once we got out of those gliders, was to charge over this side, over the road, not across the bridge, over the other side of the road, and knock out two German dugouts. When I say dugouts, doors on them, you know, well-built places. And this we did. But I'm jumping ahead a bit now. Yeah, the, uh, was there ever a feeling that this was a suicide mission, anything like that? Yes. If you can imagine 181 men in six gliders being towed across the channel behind a bomber force so that they couldn't be detected by the radar, and then without any landing lights, crash landing on rough ground. I did find out afterwards they expected two of the gliders to make it out of the six. And that was the odds against. It was something of a suicide mission. Uh, old mates of mine, when, when we meet these days, you know, you get talking, remember this, remember when, remember... You know, we must have been bloody mad when you look at it to do a thing like that. But it worked. It worked. Five of the gl gliders landed on target. The sixth glider and uh, the commander of uh, second in command, Captain Brian Priory, owing to a mistake by the navigator of the tug plane, cast off in the wrong place, and uh, they landed uh, on a bridge over the River Deves, uh, some eight miles away, and as a consequence, took no part in the battle. He did manage to bring his men back across country and got to Romville nine o'clock on the night of the 6th. Is there any, uh, any special glider training that you had received in, uh, in anticipation of this operation? Um, well, you say any special glider training, there's nothing really special about uh, flying in a glider. Uh, there were three types of glider, the Hotspur that carried um, one pilot, two under the canopy and four in the fuselage. Then there was the battle glider, the Hawser, that carried two pilots and 30 men. And the bigger glider, the Hamilcar, that carried 17 pounders, jeeps, six pounders and so on and so on. But you just get in a glider and you sit side by side and you strap yourself in and that's it. But when you're coming into the land, you get the instructions, uh, link, link up butcher's grip. So you just link up with the blokes on either side of you and as you're coming in, lift your feet up. So you sit there like that, feet up and holding on. It's not so bad if you're coming into an airfield in training, but when you land on rough ground, 
as we did. Whew, it was a shocking experience. Very were, any, nice. were there any accidents in training? Oh yes, I can remember on one particular occasion just outside Bulford, for some reason, a Hotspur glider with six uh, uh, pilot and six in it. It suddenly went like that and went straight down. Every one of them was killed. Nobody knows whether the uh, control wire, because in those little Hotspurs you could see uh, the control wire from the pilot to the rudder uh, running underneath a duck board there. And they were so flimsy, I mean, you could sort of push your finger through that canvas there, and plywood and boltwood. But there were six killed. Well, there were several people with minor injuries, you know, maybe a broken leg or something like that. But uh, that was a terrible tragedy. They were out of our regiment, uh, the intelligence section. And six of them killed straight. Now let's, uh, why was it chosen, or can you give me a, a, a brief understanding of why the uh, gliders were used rather than just paratroopers? Ah, yes. You see, to get to these bridges, some three or four miles inland, right? And they're 400 yards apart. Now, you can't get there in daylight, obviously. You're going to be knocked out. Uh, the idea of landing commandos by night and trying to get there was a bit too risky they wouldn't be able to make it in sufficient numbers. Paratroops was the obvious answer at one stage, but then depending on the weather, and as it did happen on that night, there was a wind blowing. Paratroopers will be scattered far and wide. You might get two or three almost on target, but by the time the sentries are taken care of them, raise the alarm, and don't forget that bridge was wired for demolition, and so was the gun. And if there was any chance of them losing it, then they were going to blow it up. There was only one way, and it was a mad idea by somebody. Why not try gliders by night? <laughs> well, at first they just pushed the idea to one side, but then they thought about it and thought about it, and it could work. And it did. You see, what won that battle was the element of surprise plus a lot of luck. I was in number one glider, 25 platoon, Lieutenant Danny Brotheridge, Major John Howard, and his radio man, Ted Hammond Jam Tappenden. And that glider, I was in charge of the back door, we sang all the way over. All sorts of stupid songs, you know, everything, until we got coming in over Caburg, then we cast off. And the noise in the glider changes, then it's just a shh. And away we went. Jim Warwick. How, how far did you glide? Did you, you over the channel? You no, no, we no. As we crossed the coast at Caburg, we didn't know at the time it was Caburg. We were told afterwards. Mm -hmm. We cast off over Caburg. So that's a matter of uh, what from uh, Benneville. It's a matter of uh, twenty miles, if that, less than twenty miles. And Jim Warwick and Johnny Ainsworth, our glider pilot, they drove this glider by compass and stopwatch. 32 degrees east, whatever the case may be, four seconds, eight seconds, 12 seconds, 30 seconds, seven degrees right, and that's how they got it. Their one landmark was the Bois de Bavant, a big wood. 
They finally picked that up and then they picked up the canal. I was sat by the back door. That was my job. And uh, all of a sudden the order came, open the doors. Uh, they opened the front door. I tried to lift the back door, but it was a bit ski-whiff and cover came there. And up it went. Uh, this time we were down to about 2,000 feet and coming in fast. 90 miles, 100 miles an hour. And when I looked out of that door as we came down lower and lower, and then damn trees, they looked about six inches underneath me and they were moving at 90 miles an hour. We hit the ground. And then there was a crash. The glider took off again, crashed again, did another slight takeoff, hit the deck and slithered straight across towards Pegasus Bridge, as it's now called. John Howard had asked the glider pilots to put the glider as near the barbed wire as possible. They put the glider straight through the barbed wire. The only thing that stopped them going any further, there's a rise in the ground, it's still there. And that stopped the glider. Johnny Ainsworth and uh, Jim Warwick, still tied in their seats, were thrown straight through the front of the glider. The whole front of it collapsed. The floor was ripped up, the skids went. I saw the wheels go past the door I was looking at. And I wondered at a time, what if they know they've got no wheels? One of the crashes took the wheels off. But when it finally stopped, it went silent. It just went silent. There was dust, and then a moan, and then somebody blasphemed, and then somebody, and then somebody, out, everybody out. And I'm about to come on, Charlie. I know exactly what my job is. And Corporal Cobber Kane section should have gone first out this door. We had to jump about three foot down. Uh, good luck, Cobber. He jumps. Good luck. And the next bloke that come behind him, his feet had gone through the floor of the glider. So the rest of his section couldn't clamber past him until they got him. So he and Charlie went out. The glider was tilted over that way. I rushed forward to the wing, couldn't get under it, started to go round, and I'm up to there in the swamp. Back I went with Charlie, but this time the rest are all out there, run round the back, and John Howard has been lined up, and the bridge is there. It's only 50 yards away. If you'd have carried that glider over and put it there, you couldn't have put it any closer. And John Howard just went like that to say charge, and me and Charlie Gardner run straight past. How are the Germans reacting at this point? Are you hearing gunfire or any idea what's happening? A machine gun opened up from over there, but there was a young 16-year-old Berlin soldier, German, Berlin, and his name is Helmut Roma. And when that thing crashed down, he thought it was a, a plane shot now. So he called the other sentry to take uh, the crew prisoners. And then his face with 30 screaming black-faced maniacs. And we missed him. And we missed his mate. They ran down the canal bank in the opposite direction, hid in the bushes and watched the battle take place all day. 
And that night at 10 o'clock they gave themselves up. He now runs a, ham, a hotel in Hamburg. And every 6th of June I meet him, we meet him, shake hands and have a drink. And he still says, he reckons he's the luckiest man alive. And he was. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't mucking about, we meant business. So the alarm is given and, and all that's it. Uh, we knocked out the dugouts. So I opened the door, the first one, in with a hand grenade, slam, bang, open it, Charlie with a brain gun, repeat with the second one. And then the third one, uh, the second one, the first one, as we came past, I heard a moan or a groan. And, so I took out 77 phosphorus and did the tape a bit through that, that went off. Then Charlie and I up to the bridge from this side. The gliders are on that side, we've come over this side, up to the bridge. But the platoons were shouting out uh, codes. A Abel, Baker, Charlie, Don, Easy, Fox. There were six platoons. And they was all shouting out these codes so as nobody shoots anybody by mistake. But as I dashed up, John Howe swung round with his sting gun and pointed, who's it? I said, ham and jam, ham and jam. Ham and, he said, get up, get across there, get across. And that's uh, when the real battle started. You see, uh, there were four platoons of uh, D Company of the 2nd Battalion, Ox and Bucks, Glider Brigade, 22, 23, 24 and 25 under uh, Lieutenant Hooper, uh, Todd Sweeney, David Wood, and uh, Danny Brotheridge, and two platoons of B Company under the command of uh, Lieutenant Fox and Lieutenant R.A. Sandy Smith. But also in those gliders were five airborne engineers in each one, making a total of 30 under the command of Captain Jock Nielsen. And that comprised the 180. But the odd man out was a paratrooper. And it was one of those last minute things, any questions, you know, before I went briefing. Somebody said, uh, shouldn't we take a doctor on this trip just in case, you know, we might. Johnny says, oh yeah, yeah. All right, we'll try and get one. Well, the regimental uh, MO couldn't come because he was coming over the following night with the regiment. So um, they asked for volunteers, and a fellow out of the Paris, a Captain Doc Jacobs, volunteered. And it was his first and last trip in a glider. He said, never again. <laughs> but that was that. When, you were, when the gliders had landed around the bridge, were you aware of uh, one had gone astray, or were you able to communicate with the other side? No, was it no not immediately, no. Uh, the first thing, do the job that you've been given. So we were not interested in anything else, just hoping they were behind us. As I say, Captain Brian pried his glider. We were 30 men short. That one went on a bridge over the River Dees. But we came in first. Lieutenant Wood came in second, but third behind him was R.A. Smith's B Company. And that came down hit the ground and went over the top of David Wood's glider and landed in second place. And the plinths, when they put them there, one, two and three, John Howard never said a word for about 35, 40 years. It should have been one, three, two. And two years ago they changed the plates over on them. 
But you see, we all had our job to do. Our job was to take that bridge. But Lieutenant Colonel Pine Coffin, what a name, was in charge of the 7th Para Battalion. Their job was to make their way as fast as they could to Benneville, to the bridges, to surround it and help us to hold the, the lot until Lord Lovett and his commandos could reach us by midday the next day. And the 7th Battalion under Pine Coffin, they fought around Benneville all day. They lost over 300 men. The fighting for the bridge was fast and furious. Parr grabbed his submachine gun and sprinted across the bridge. At one stage, um, I ran across the bridge after I'd done my job to the cafe there and asked where Danny Brotheridge was. Um, we were supposed to rendezvous with him some 30 yards past the cafe in the ditch on the left. And um, some, uh, I don't know where he is, nobody's seen him, uh, and words to that effect. So I thought, well, there was a, two men wounded lying on the bridge. There was a dead German lying in the middle of the road there. So I thought, well, let's go up towards the T-junction. So I started to run, and I ran past what I thought was another dead German, and I stopped, turned around, and it was Danny Brotheridge. I knelt down beside him, and he said something. His eyes were open. I said, I'm sorry, I can't hear you, sir. And I put my hand under his head to lift him up, and he just closed his eyes, and, and uh, blood everywhere. He was the first man to die in the, in the invasion. Parr and the others overwhelmed the German defenders and took up positions and waited for daylight. By midday on June 6th, the tired but determined British paratroopers heard the unmistakable blare of bugles and bagpipes. The British commandos that had come ashore on the beach that morning were on their way. I shot out of the gun pit and went to the end of the bridge and looked over towards the T-junction. And marching down the road from the T-junction was Lord Lovett and his commandos. He was wearing a white roll neck pullover, a pack on his back, and marching to his right and two paces in front of him was a bloke playing the bagpipes who later turned out to be a fellow by the name of Bill Millen. They came down and for some reason I dashed across the bridge to meet them. I don't know why, it's just an impulse, but they just passed the Café Gondre and was almost on the point of stepping on the bridge. I stopped short, Lovett just held his hand up like that, and I saluted and I said, we're very pleased to see you, sir. He said, well done. Well done. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? 
or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Those first frantic and deadly minutes of D-Day gave Wally Parr a clear understanding of the true cost of war. War is the most personal, impersonal experience you can ever have. You could be walking across a field, shells come down, everybody hits the ground. You try to claw yourself into the ground, the scream of shells exploding all around you, the stench of cordite. When it's over, you look around, you all right, mate? You all right? Yeah, I'm all right, yeah. Are you all right, mate? You all right? Hey? And you tremble over there, turn him over. Young fella, a mate of yours, you, you could tell him lying in a barrack room bed his footsteps coming up the boards, his sense of humour, maybe his wife photographs, his mum and dad photographs, maybe his kid, his girlfriend. And in that split second of that blinding explosion, all he is now is a face and a memory from the past and a name. All his ambitions, all his hopes, destroyed. That's war. I'm not here to make excuses for war or to justify war, but I definitely am not going to glorify war. War is death, disease, destruction, disablement, and a sheer waste of men and women of raw materials. The only people that profit from war are the men who make the munitions and the guns. Nobody wins wars. There's losers on every side. On the eastern edge of the invasion area, not far from Pegasus Bridge, another unit of British paratroopers, men of the 9th Parachute Battalion, landed near their target, the village of Merville. Their job was to capture a battery of German artillery guns that threatened the invasion beaches. The big guns were protected by concrete emplacements, machine gun nests, barbed wire, minefields, and a garrison of nearly 130 German troops. 29-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Terence Otway commanded the 9th Parachute Battalion. In the weeks leading up to the invasion, Otway and his men rehearsed every step of their daring plan on a full-size mock-up of the target. I had already decided that I had to have a mock-up battery resembling as near as possible the real objective so that every single man knew exactly what he had to do and where he had to go. That was very important because if, and it turned out to be, it paid off a huge dividend because we expected to be dropped wide but not, we didn't expect such a bad drop as we got but it was essential that every man knew where he was so that he can get to the rendezvous on his own if necessary and if we had moved off follow us and catch us up and take part in the attack. 
By the time the men climbed aboard their transports on the night of June 5th, they were prepared and ready for anything. But what lay ahead was anyone's guess. We were all scared as hell. We were were scared out of our wits. I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen. I don't think you can say we were excited. Everybody was very quiet. And sitting in the aircraft, there wasn't a sound. Nobody spoke. I get the willies now if I think about it. The transport planes mistakenly dropped much of Otway's battalion in the wrong drop zones. Otway had planned to attack the German battery with nearly 700 of his men. But now, in the dark of night, he could muster only 150 paratroopers. The alternatives, you either go on or you give up. There's no halfway. You can't give up. And you can never speak to your friends again if you gave up. Much of the battalion's demolition equipment had been lost in the scattered landings. Otway asked one of his men what he could do about the barbed wire that encircled the gun emplacements and bunkers. We went very, very quietly, took up position ready to assault over and through the wire. I, I said, how many gaps can you blow? And he said, two or three. So I said, OK, do that. And I said, you cross the wire by getting some volunteers and telling them to lie down on on the barbed wire, hands like that, and the others run over their backs as a bridge. About four o'clock in the morning, Otway ordered the assault to begin by blowing the gaps in the barbed wire defenses. As soon as they went up, the assault troops went through first. The support company followed. I was in the gap. I went up with the leading troops and I stood in the gap while the others passed me. The troops then spread out. One party went to the entrance, which was on the landward side, throwing grenades in there with the doors which were shut or kicked them open and whatnot. The other party went round to the open side where the the guns were firing towards the sea and attacked in there with stand guns. Otway's small force overwhelmed the German garrison, and in a few minutes, the fierce firefight was over. His men then turned their attention to the big artillery guns inside the bunkers. Even though they had no explosives, the paratroopers found a way to knock the guns out of action. Well, we took breech blocks out and threw them away, right out into the, into the fields. You can't fire a gun without a breech block. And if you can neutralize the gun and stop them firing, You've done your job, even if you don't have explosives to to blow the things up. So that's what we did. When I was satisfied that we'd done as much as we could to neutralise them, if you like, put them out of action, we moved on to Omfreville. Following their successful attack on the battery at Merville, Otway and the men of the 9th Parachute Battalion moved on to their next objective in Normandy. Had their attack failed, those German guns would have certainly rained havoc down on the Allied landing forces now approaching the beaches. As far as I'm concerned, the 9th Parachute Battalion did one of the most important jobs in the Second World War, the invasion of, of France. I don't think that's exaggerating. But I don't take the credit for it. 
as simple as that. I'm still very proud of them. Operation Overlord would be the first combat action for the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. Bill True was a private first class in the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, part of the 101. True and his buddy spent most of June the 5th cleaning and prepping their gear at an airfield in England. Their regimental commander gathered his men and gave the paratroopers a rousing pep talk. D-Day would be their baptism of fire. I can't remember whether it was the night before we actually uh, boarded the planes to go or that afternoon, but I, I do remember uh, uh, the essence of what he was telling us about how good we were, how ready we were, and then he described all of the things that were going to be thrown at the Germans in the way of the, the Air Force and, and the Navy and the infantrymen coming up from the beaches and so forth. It, and uh, he just went on and on, and then he got a real good laugh when he said, I'll tell you right now, I feel sorry for those poor bastards over there. <laughs> so that was kind of inspirational. And then the day of, of actually uh, getting ready to go, uh, we were, you know, blackening our faces and uh, making that final little polish of the guns and, uh, and a lot of time spent sharpening our jump knife, and I don't know why, that got to be a little bit of an obsession. It seemed like the guys were just spending endless time getting a, a, a blade a sharp enough that they cut hairs with them, you know. But I, I can remember uh, especially how, how tough it was to get everything securely attached, including our parachute and everything, because we were really loaded. We had never uh, had so much equipment and ammunition, especially ammunition. I was in a 60 millimeter mortar crew, and in addition to all of my own rifle, you know, cartridge belt, and a couple of bandoliers and and grenades and and so forth, I had to carry a piece of the of the, of the mortar, and I had to carry some rounds for the mortar, and everything. When you included the the weight of the parachute, which of course you would dump once you had landed, but including the weight of the parachute, uh, uh, we figured we weighed around 300 pounds. This is a 160 pound guy who now weighs 300, you know. And uh, we weren't able to, to, to board the planes under our own power. They, they had to help us up the steps. And, uh, and that's a real, real clear memory. The, the idea that you couldn't even climb up into that airplane without help was really different. This was this was for sure the real thing. Uh, that, was, that came home very clearly. True recalls that his plane took off from the English airfield about 10 p.m. And once they were in formation with the rest of the other transports, the troopers headed out over the English Channel. Each of us uh, thinking his, his own thoughts, uh, you know, here we are after two whole years of, uh, of training. Here we go. It really, uh, it really was to do something, and uh, and I can st still vividly remember when the anti-aircraft started coming up. Apparently, just as we went over the coast of Normandy, uh, the tracer bullets and the other anti-aircraft uh, was coming up, and I was sitting where I could look out uh, the open door, 
and it really looked like the tail of our plane was on fire. It was, uh, it was that much uh, anti-aircraft uh, going on. And, uh, and, I, and I can so vividly remember how surprised I was that there were people down there on the ground trying to kill me personally. You know. and, and, and as I later thought about it, how incongruous that was, you know, I'd been in training for two years for combat. Everything about a paratrooper was combat. And yet it was a surprise. They, they're trying to kill me and, and it's possible they'll succeed. And uh, when the buzzer finally, when we finally stood up and hooked up, just a few minutes after that, I guess, uh, and the buzzer finally went, and we must have, I'll bet we poured out of that airplane as fast as, uh, as ever on any, uh, any training mission. But as I went out of the plane, I can remember seeing a fire, and I thought it was, uh, I thought it was the Pathfinders, uh, because supposedly there were going to be Pathfinders who had dropped ahead, and they were going to have lit signals telling us where to go and so forth, and that was the first thought that occurred to me. But as I, as I saw it, I realized it really was a fire, and then I, and I later learned it was a house that was on fire in St. Mariglis. We had landed just uh, just outside of St. Mariglis, and I landed in a in a field surrounded by hedgerows, uh, right next to a nice peaceful cow who just looked at me and uh, rather unconcerned. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, so I got out of my chute as quickly as I could, and I wanted to get out of the middle of this field because it was quite light. There was a moonlight night, as I recall, quite bright, and I wanted to get out of the middle of a field. Uh, over to a hedgerow and assembled my rifle. So I, I did that, got over to, into the hedgerow and I was assembling my rifle and, uh, and looked up and here was somebody hitting straight at me. And I thought, my first German, he spotted me landing and he's coming after me. And I couldn't get my gun together in time. And I was just ready to throw it in his face. That's all I had, all I could do was throw it in his face and maybe I could knife him or something. And I heard it click, click, and it was, it was one of my buddies. He had clicked his little, we all, we all had a little cricket to identify each other. I'm forever grateful that they thought of that little, that little cricket because uh, he and I maybe would have killed each other. <laughs> or one of us uh, might have been seriously injured as a result. Throughout the night, True met up with more men from his unit and slowly, Quietly, the small band made their way to the beaches. The next morning, June the 6th, they linked up with infantrymen coming ashore at Utah Beach. I remember by that was daylight and there were uh, infantry troops coming up, uh, up, the, up from the beach. And I hollered over at uh, the guy heading the column. I said, hey, Mac, what outfit is that? Not that it made that much difference, but that's was a friendly way to greet some other Americans. And he hollered back and told me what it was. And they came on up as they got closer. I realized he was, he was either a, a full colonel or a brigadier general. And I had called him back. I felt a little sheepish, but he was real friendly. <laughs> he didn't take offense under those occasions of being called Mac, apparently. Once they had linked up with friendly forces, True and the other paratroopers pressed inland and began patrolling for the enemy. 
I can remember uh, a, a patrol I went out on. Uh, Joe Flick in my squad uh, volunteered, he and myself, to go out on a reconnaissance patrol. And uh, there were six of us on the patrol. And uh, it was intended strictly reconnaissance. We were to go out and make, I think, a big circle around an area and, and see if there were any Germans out there. And if we ran into any Germans, well, come on back. That was the kind of information we were intended to get. And, and I can uh, remember we were walking along this hedgerow, and I glanced out into the to the field, and a German soldier was just aiming his pistol at one of the guys uh, up the line, and that was the first time I had a real clear picture of what I was shooting at. There is the enemy. And later thinking about it, I was impressed how, with how uh, good my training had been because uh, it was the most automatic thing to bring my rifle to my shoulder, uh, taking the safety off as I brought it up and squeezing off the trigger just as uh, calmly as, uh, as firing it on a firing range. But I missed him, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so by the time I I squeezed off another round, which probably was only three or four seconds altogether, anyway, uh, he was down because the guys in front had uh, cut him down in a hurry. There were two other soldiers with him that I had seen just a little ways behind him, and they they of course had disappeared into the it was a rather deep grass out there. So uh, well, okay. This is the reconnaissance, let's go back and tell them there are Germans out here. So we headed back then and on the way out we had seen a, a field that had a, a lot of uh, American ammunition, uh, 30 caliber machine gun ammunition. We said, gee, we might need that sometime, we better stop and get that. So the guys went out into the field to get this ammunition and I said, I'll stay here on the road and look back here where those guys were, keep, a, keep an eye out. At any rate, They'd been, the, the guys were down in the field uh, picking up the ammunition and uh, a little black dog came running down, the, trotting down the road. And I, I figured little black dogs don't run around out there unless they're with somebody. Sure enough, there were three German soldiers coming along the hedgerow. And they were close enough that I couldn't, I couldn't holler at the guys down in here without the Germans hearing me too. So I figured the best thing I better do is take a couple of shots at the Germans. That would alert my guys. And, and so I did. And of course, the Germans disappeared the second I pulled off around. And uh, Joe Flick, my buddy, he was always a kind of a, a flamboyant sort of a guy. He said, where are they? Where are they? And he's peeking out of the hedge. Well, I went down that way. And, and he was carrying himself Thompson. I, I loved him one rifle. That was my my comfort, but he liked the Sub Thompson. He jumped, jumped up on the road and was spraying that Sub Thompson just down in the general direction. And I, afterwards I thought, as I saw movies, it looked like John Wayne holding off a, a bonsai attack or something. <laughs> but anyway, we didn't see any more of those Germans. True went on many more patrols and fought in a number of battles to push the Germans out of Normandy. Five weeks after D-Day, the division left France and returned to England to prepare for another mission. Normandy uh, was indeed our first combat experience. I think the most important thing that, uh, that D-Day means to me today is the feeling I get as I visit uh, the cemetery above Omaha Beach and stand at the graves of the five men in my company that are buried there and know that 
It means that the guys that, uh, that were my buddies didn't live to have full lives as, as I've had. I remember them, each of them, Private John Supko, PFC Nick Nikelski, uh, Corporal Tom Wolford, Sergeant Julius Hauck, and uh, Lieutenant uh, Freeling Colt uh, are all buried there. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and that's, years later is when you really feel it and really mourn buddies that died. And uh, Johnny Supko was a little guy and uh, one of the youngest guys in the company. And that's to stand at, at his grave in Normandy, I know that uh, I've lived a full life and had children and grandchildren and he'll always be a boy who, who died there. Uh, it uh, gets you, really punches you one. Not all eyewitness accounts of D-Day came from combat veterans. War correspondents gave the world the first account of the invasion. Radio commentator George Hicks filed this dramatic report from aboard a warship in the English Channel the evening of June the 6th. We have yet to see a German plane over the amphibious convoy, which doesn't necessarily mean that we shan't see them before the attack is over. Our air support has been fine, and the loudspeakers call out almost constantly Spitfires on the port, or Mustangs overhead, or B-17s passing on the starboard side. And as far as I know, no report has come in of attacks by Nazi seacraft onto the convoys. Now it's almost black dark, and you see the ships uh, lying in all directions, just like black shadows on the gray sky, some signaling out sea, sheltered on the inside from the Germans' eyes, signaling with red lights, blinking code. There are four fires on the shore, looking like pinpoints, winking, smudged by smoke. Now planes are going overhead. That baby was plenty low. I think I just made the statement that no German planes have been seen, and I think there was the first one we've seen so far. Came very low, just cleared our stack, and as he passed, he let go a stream of tracer that did no harm. And then just as that happened, there was a burst of fire on the coast just off of us five miles. I think you probably heard me... German planes have been in the sky now, the darkness is on us, and the tracers have been flying up. They seem to have withdrawn from them for the moment, but the plane that we just had come over our ship was the first Nazi we've seen so far. He took a pass at us and went on, and nothing particular happened. <laughs> ship has just gave its warning whistles and now the flak is coming up in the sky with streamers from the warships behind us. The sparks seem to just float up in the sky. We're too far away to hear their explosion. 
Heavy firing now just behind us. And anti-aircraft burst in the sky. And bombs bursting on the shore and along in the convoys of the German planes that are beginning their first attack on the night of June 6th. Now the darkness has come on it. These planes you hear overhead now are the motors of the Nazis coming and going in the cloudy sky. The reverberation of bombs. Every once in a while you see a burst of fire from a bigger caliber on one of the warships firing up. Black overhead. That was a bomb hit. Another one. And the tracer line keep arcing up into the darkness. Very heavy fire now off our stern. More ships in that area. Fiery burst. And the flank and steamer is going out in a diagonal slant. It's flying right over our head now. Over our heads is a ship from a ship to the side of it. Now it's died down. Blue white flag right over our head. And we can't see the plane, nothing but the flag burst of the ACAC in the dark sky. Here comes the planes. More anti-aircraft fire inboard toward the shore. And the Germans must be attacking low with their planes off our stern because the streamer fire, the tracers, is almost parallel with the water. Hot tracer lines are coming up almost all around us. Off the stern and off the side toward the French coast. Flares are coming down now. You can hear the machine gunning. The whole seaside is covered with tracer fire. Going up, the beating of the bombs, the machine gunning, as the planes come over closer. Fiery glow. Brilliant fire down low toward the French coast, a couple of miles. I don't know whether it's on the shore or is the ship on fire. Here's very heavy ack ack now, right to it.
starboard side. Traces are going up in almost every direction. As we pick up the German bombers overhead. Is that a bunk? Huh? The crews are flying over yeah. fire from the naval warships, as well as 20 millimeter and 40 millimeter tracer, was the sounds you've just heard. Perhaps the burst or two of the bomb. Well, it's fast for a moment now. There's nothing but black cloud puffs from the explosions in the sky and the distant roar of the plane motors. Now they're working toward our aft again, down there near some of the British convoys. If you'll excuse me, I'll just take a deep breath for a moment and stop speaking. Now the air attack has seemed to have died down, except for the British convoy, off a couple of miles beyond it. And for that one fire burning near the shore, the French shore, which is beginning to die down somewhat. Can't report that there were any hits, because they seem to have been none on any of the ships around us at all. See nothing in the night, no fires, or anything of that kind. Here we go again, another plane's come over.
got one. We got that one. We got it right here. Hey, did we? Yeah. Did you in? Great blotch of fire came down in the smoldering now, just off our port side in the sea. Smoke and flame there. You said it. I get the place to We've had a few minutes pause. The lights of that burning Nazi plane are just twinkling now in the sea and going out. When the tracer starts up again and there's warning of another plane coming in. Now 10 past 12 and the German air attack seems to have died out. To recapitulate, the first plane that was over that we described at the beginning of the broadcast was a low-flying German, probably Ju-88, that was leading the flight and came on the convoy in surprise, we believe, because he drew up and only fired as he passed by. And perhaps he was as surprised as we were uh, to see each other. And uh, there seems to have been no damage to the amphibious force that we can discover. Uh, one bomb fell astern of this warship. 150 yards away. Uh, a string of rockets were fired at a cruiser beside us on the port side. No damage was done. And uh, gun number 42 at our port, just beside the microphone, shot down the plane that fell into the sea off to the port side. It was Ensign William Schreiner of Houston, Texas, who's the general control officer and uh, Seaman Thomas Spira of Baltimore, Maryland uh, handled the, the direction finder. It was their first uh, kill for this gun, and the boys were all pretty excited about it. A twin-barreled 40-millimeter anti-aircraft piece. They're already thinking now of painting a big star on their turret. They'll be at that first thing tomorrow morning when it's daylight. Meantime, now the French coast is quieted down. There seems to be no more shelling into it. And all around us is darkness and no light or no firing. Now 10 past 12, the beginning of June 7, 1944. This is George Hicks speaking. I now return you to the United States. hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps, 
and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.